You'll find the book of John chapter 20, John chapter 20, and we'll begin to read in verse number 19. I want to speak to you on this subject this morning, getting ready for the work. Getting ready for the work. John chapter 20, we'll begin to read in verse 19. Won't you stand this morning, all those that can and are able in honor and in reverence for the reading of God's word. When John chapter 20, begin to read in verse 19, the Bible says these words. Then the same day at evening... Being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Let's pray together. Father, we pray your spirit would speak to us, challenge us today. God, I pray for the one that's never been saved, that they'll turn and trust you to be Lord of their life today. God, I pray for those that are desiring and faithfully seek to live on mission every day. Lord, this text this morning will be a prop. It will be an encouragement that will stand against any effort the devil may ever try to bring against us to cause us to turn back or turn away from the work that you've set before us. But God, I pray for believers here this morning, disciples, uh, Lord, who are busy in chores, but Lord, they're not in the field working. God, I pray you'll turn our eyes and our hearts to the fields that are white unto harvest, and you'll find us faithfully every day living on mission, all together representing you in this local church. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now I invite you to be seated. Last week we saw uh, the seven-mile walk that Jesus had with uh, the two disciples uh, who were moving from Jerusalem there to Emmaus and all the conversation that they had together and their boldness to talk to a stranger about the things um, that had happened and that they had experienced and seen and how now word had come that the tomb uh, was empty. And you'll remember that Jesus went back uh, to the book of Genesis, and then began to go through all the scriptures that pertained to him. And the Bible says that he would have gone further with them. He wanted them to keep walking, um, but they constrained him. They had their own plan, and the evening was far spent. So they came in, they sat down over food, and Jesus took the bread, broke it, blessed it, and their eyes were open. They knew it was Christ, and he disappeared. And they began to speak to one another and say, you know, didn't our hearts burn? within us when he spoke. They, they knew that it was Christ who had been in their presence. And they didn't worry about the seven miles or the darkness. They turned back and they headed straight back to Jerusalem to find the eleven, the Bible says in Luke 24, and to be able to, to begin to share with them what they had seen and what they had experienced. And the Bible says in verse number 36 of Luke 24 that after they had shared what had happened to the eleven, that Jesus appeared in their midst and said, Peace be to you. And that's where John picks up in verse number 19. It says, In, in the same day uh, at evening. And so John picks up where the uh, story of Emmaus ends and Jesus comes to see um, the disciples. You know, for 40 days, Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says, For 40 days after Christ arose, he ministered to his disciples. He was preparing them for the work that lay ahead. There'd be a lot of confusion. Well, what are, what are we to do now? Well, Jesus removed all doubt. He took away any opportunity to be confused. 
He continued to give a sure, certain word what the church was to do in his absence, to occupy till he came. But there was work that was to be done. And so our Lord seized all those opportunities to continue to get them ready for the, the, the work of living on mission um, until he returned for his church. I want you to see three truths this morning, three pictures uh, as Jesus continued uh, to prepare his disciples for the work that lay ahead. First off, I want you to notice this morning, a sad picture, a sad picture. The Bible says in verse number 19, then that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors, of, when, when the doors were shut for fear of the Jews. Now, they knew the tomb was empty. Um, they had gone there. It's the early part of chapter 20, uh, verse 4. The Bible says that Peter and John uh, were running together. They were having a foot race to get to the tomb. Mary had come and told them that the tomb was empty, and so they decided to go and see for themselves. Nothing wrong with that, um, but they had the foot race. But I've always found it interesting, just a little humor, um, that John just wants you to know, if you'll look at verse number 4, that he's the one that, ran, that won the foot race. Um, he made it there before Peter, and the other disciple outran Peter. Really doesn't help us in anything for faith and practice, but John just wanted you to know that he, he won the foot race. And so stooping down, looking in, they saw the linen clothes lying there, uh, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came and followed him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there, the handkerchief that had been wrapped around his head, uh, not lined with the linen cloths, but folded together uh, in a place by itself. And the other disciple who came to the tomb first, he went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So they saw the tomb was empty. They, they knew that. Uh, later, Mary had a conversation with Jesus. He, he presented himself uh, to her, verses 16 through 18. So she spoke to him. She came to the disciples, and she told them, and I've, not only is the tomb empty, I saw Jesus. I have spoken with him. She already proved that she was a reliable source. And so, but here they are. And also, um, the two Emmaus disciples have now returned. I'll bet that there wasn't much time in between what they began to share. But notice the sad picture that the Bible says, for fear of the Jews, they've shut the doors and they're, they're locked in. The doors were shut. Now, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus had told them every single thing that was going to happen, that he must die, he must suffer, and that he would rise again. So he'd already told them all of this. Remember that in Matthew chapter 10, he sent them out on a training mission. He was preparing them for what ministry was going to be after he departed. He had told them already that it's to your advantage that I go away. I am going away. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come again and receive you that where I am, you can be with me. And so he had provided all this instruction, all this truth, he had given them practical training. He sent them out to be ministers, to, to share the word, to preach the good news, to call people to the kingdom. And so they had been equipped and they had been encouraged. But notice this, they weren't living out that calling. The Bible says here that for fear, look at verse number 19, for fear of the Jews, they were, they were locked behind closed doors. They had absolutely sheltered in place for, for fear. 
Um, and, and there's, listen, there's, 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 there has, needs to be a balance between wise obedience and tempting God. Um, we had a lesson this morning about testing God, just you know, putting God to a test. And Deuteronomy 6 says we're not to test the Lord our God. So foolish it could have been in the flesh to walk right back into the heart of Jerusalem and said, you know, hey, I dare you to crucify us. We believe in Jesus too. Well, that would have been an act of the flesh. But what a great example of the two Emmaus disciples that they, they're moving along, they're talking about Jesus. Here a total stranger comes. It's Jesus who's veiled himself. They don't know it. But they begin to engage this stranger about Jesus Christ and all the things that had happened. They weren't in the flesh just trying to look at Rome and say, hey, dare you to kill us. We've got faith, not fear, buddy. They weren't tempting God. But on the far other end of the spectrum, for fear, they've sheltered in place. What a sad picture. And it's a sad picture, friends, sadly, of many churches, families, and individuals today. They've just sheltered in place for fear of, and you can fill in the blank, whatever it is. God filled in the blank for us here. John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John wrote down. They're sheltering in place. They're, they're behind closed doors, holding on to the good news that the tomb is empty, Jesus is alive, Mary just talked to him, and they're sheltering behind closed doors within themselves, holding on to that truth for fear. You know, most often it's, it's for fear of change. For churches who aren't actively living on mission, out in the highways and hedges, sharing the gospel, the good news that Jesus lives, Jesus saves, he forgives sin, he offers new life. Rather than do that, it's for fear of change. It could be for fear of change of ministries. You see, when a church has that kind of outward focus, when it's had an inward focus, all the ministries in the life of the church have to change. Because, see, the focus has always been inward. What can the church do for me? A lot of times people will visit the church, they'll visit this church and say, you know, what does your church have for us? Well, the question should never be for a disciple, what does this church have for me? It is, what can I give in the ministry of this church to help others? See, that's, that's the focus of a disciple. It's never about me. It's Jesus first, others second, and me dead last. But when there's a total outward focus within the, the, the life of the family, all the ministries of the church have to change because they're for the needs of others. It can be fear of change of schedule. You know, for, for a church to effectively reach lost people and to disciple people, to reach new disciples that are moving into the community, the church may have to change the tradition of what its ministry schedule has always been. It doesn't mean it has to. It really comes down to this, friend, whether the church would be willing to do that if God led that way to be more effective in fulfilling the gospel needs. A change of traditions. You know, the, the seven dying words of the church are, we never did it that way before. Tradition. You know, we'll, we'll never change. You know, when a doctor begins to reveal to you that you've got a health problem, you've got two choices. You can change or you can die. One of the two. And in churches that end up dying... And friend, you ever think about this? All the churches in the New Testament that got book deals, Philippi, Church at Colossae, Thessalonica, the churches in 
uh, Galatia, Corinth. You know what those churches are today? A pile of rocks. They're all dead. There comes the time in the life of churches for them to be more effective in the gospel. If the Holy Spirit begins to lead about traditions changing, those traditions have to change. There has to be a change of focus. A lot of times, if the focus has been inward, it's been moved inward within the life of the church, to be effective in fulfilling the work that God has given us, you have to have a change of focus. It's not about me and mine, but it's about others. You have to have that outward focus. But churches lock the doors because of fear of all of those changes. There can be fear within the life of families and individuals. Fear of change of priorities. You know, if, if we as a family, you know, that's, that's me, my, my wife, and my kids. I, if, if my family, I'm not talking about church family, I'm just talking about my family. You think about your family. If our family really begins to live on mission, we pray God use our family to build relationships with people and to reach people. That means I've got to have a change of priorities because the tendency of self is self-preservation, self-joy, self-enjoyment. And so to really live on mission, there'll have to be a change of priorities. there have to be a change of loyalties. Uh, I've shared this with you before, and you know it's true. I grew up in Western North Carolina. It's the same over there. People can be clannish with their families in Western North Carolina and East Tennessee. It almost becomes kind of a, of a little cult. You can't spend any time reaching other people because you spend so much time with your family. Would anybody amen that? Just so much time. Everything you do is always with your family. And so there'll have to be a change in those loyalties if your family's going to live on mission. There'll have to be a change in your lived-out schedule. That means you're going to give time to build a relationship with neighbors, other people, and spending time with them so that you can build relationships that you can introduce the gospel in their life. And that means that some relationships will have to cease. Ungodly relationships that have the wrong influences. When you really begin to have a desire to live on mission as an individual and family, I promise you, it can even be those that are saved. People that aren't all in, they're going to resent you. They're going to try to shame you that you don't spend as much time with them as you used to. We don't see as much as we used to. Friend, there's only 24 hours a day. There's only seven days in a week. You've only got so much time that you can devote to living on mission with all the other responsibilities. Fear of change can keep the doors of your life locked and keep you from living in the field the way that God wants you. As an individual, fear of rejection. I, you know, I want to share the gospel with someone. I want to tell people the good news, that the tomb is empty, that, that Christ has changed my life, he lives in my heart. But I'm so afraid of being rejected. Uh, it can be fear of failure. Well, well, what if I say it wrong? What if I, what if I share it wrong? What if I just stumble all over myself? And it can be fear of persecution. Man, they're going to make fun of me. I don't want my coworkers, you know, calling me a holy roller. I don't want people that aren't all in giving me a hard time because I'm trying to live on mission. Now, our family's trying to live on mission. It really comes down for you guys to take some inventory and say, you know, God, these individuals, these 11, that you had prepared, that you'd given training, encouragement, example, you had shared truth, and you had called them to live on mission, they made a choice for fear of the Jews to lock themselves behind closed doors. Listen to me this morning. 
it brings the opportunity for me, for you, your family, and for our church family just to stop and say, God, are there any doors that are locked in my life for fear of, and you fill in the blank? What a sad picture. Jesus had risen from the grave. There was good news to share, but they, for fear of the Jews, were locked behind closed doors. Number two, I want you to notice this morning, a sure protection. Just like our Lord, He comes and gives a sure protection against this. They're huddled in fear. Man, they needed some encouragement. The two Emmaus disciples, Cleopas and his buddy, we don't know his name, they show up, they begin to tell them everything that we happened, that had happened. That was coupled with what Mary had just shared. She talked to him. Uh, apparently, the text lends itself. She, she reached out to hug him, and she said, don't, don't cling to me yet. I've not ascended. Man, she, she found him. She didn't want to let him go again. They had this good news, but they were so confused. And it's right after that, Jesus comes to them. Look what the Bible says again in verse number 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, what's the next two words? Jesus came. He came to where they were. He stood in their midst, and he said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus comes to them. Notice first off there, the encouragement of his presence. The encouragement of his presence. They needed encouragement. And so Jesus came, and the Bible says that he stood in their midst. And look on down in verse number 20, at the last part of the verse. The Bible says the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And certainly so. That dispelled all confusion. He is alive. They saw him with their, their very eyes. But listen, they had become dependent upon his presence. Not upon his word, but upon his presence. In his absence, they still had his word. Don't miss that. He had told them what was going to happen, what was going to take place, and what they were to do after he departed. But that word wasn't enough. They couldn't be glad that they had a sure certain word. So Jesus came and he bodily stood in their presence. When they saw the Lord standing there, the Bible says that they were glad. Psalm chapter 16 and verse number 11, the Bible says, You will show me the path of life. Listen, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. Friend, you'll never have more joy in your life than when you are in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. In a right relationship with Him. Listen, you can't have joy when you're in His presence if you've got unconfessed sin in your life. You're, you're going to be ashamed. Um, you, you're, you're always going to be suspicious. You're, you're going to act different. But my friend, when you, are, when you have laid your heart bare before the Lord, you've asked Him and invited Him to search you, to try you, to see if there's any wicked way within your life. And you have confessed that sin. You have forsaken that sin. There is no greater feeling, friend, no, no greater enthusiasm or joyous feeling that can be experienced than to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ especially in times of difficulty. It's always good to be in Jesus' presence, but you know, let's not be super spiritual. It's really good to be in Jesus' presence when water's getting in your boat, isn't it? Boy, the Apostle Paul had such a time just as that. In Acts chapter 23, he had been arrested. He had been so badly, absolutely beaten 
uh, that he had to be carried in Acts chapter 21. When he reached the stairs, the Bible says the, the soldiers had to carry him. They had beaten him so badly because he was trying to tell people how to be saved. He confronted lies with truth. And how did they respond in turn? They beat the daylights out of him. Then they imprisoned him. And Paul really didn't know what was going to happen. In Acts chapter 23 and verse number 11, the Bible says this, But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. When Paul was at a time when the devil was most certainly whispering to him, you shouldn't have turned, you shouldn't have turned in Acts 9. You shouldn't have turned toward the light. You should have just kept on going. Everything was great. We were killing Christians. Now you're about to be killed. When there was that challenge there to faint spiritually and literally, friend, to, to shut the door. Paul could have said, I'm not talking about Jesus anymore. Every time I talk about Christ, I get a rock thrown at me. I get beaten. Something happens. I'm done. I quit. But in that very moment of need, personally, Jesus came and he stood by him. The disciples had had that same opportunity, friend, that same experience for Christ to come. And Jesus had given instruction in John chapter 15. If, 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 if you abide in Christ, if you remain in Him, when you turn from sin, you trust Christ to be Lord of your life, you are grafted into His vine. You're grafted into His vine. We're just a branch. And when we abide in Him, when we remain in Him, then we're with Him because we're abiding. Listen to me, friend. It's just, it's just common truth. You can't be out of the presence of Christ when you're abiding in Him. You say, well, boy, I just... I wish Jesus would come to me this morning. Have you been saved? Are you in a right relationship with him today? Then, my friend, if the answer to both of those is yes, you are in his presence. You are abiding in Jesus Christ, and there is encouragement in his presence. Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus says, And lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. There'll never be a time, friend, as a child of God, that when you, when you are saved in a right relationship with Him, that you will be out of the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we physically touch Him? No. But my friend, He lives within our heart. He lives within our heart. And so there's an encouragement of His presence, but also there's an encouragement of His peace. Notice what the Bible says in verse number 19, that He came and He stood in their midst, and he said to them, he knew what was taking place. They had no peace. For fear of the Jews, they had sheltered in place. And so he knew what they needed. They needed peace to calm the storm that was in their life. And look at the text, what the Bible says. He says, peace be with you. John chapter 14, he had given them a practical lesson upon this. Verse number 25, he says, these things I've spoken to you while being present with you, now listen, but the helper of the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance of all these things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He said, I'm not always going to bodily be with you. 
But the Holy Spirit's going to come to encourage you and help you. He says, but I'm going to leave you peace. And that peace will guard your heart and mind, Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. And they had lived through that practical illustration. Mark chapter 4, remember, verses 35 through 41. Jesus had called the disciples to sail across uh, the Sea of Galilee. That was his will for them. And the Bible says that as they began to, to cross over, verse 37 says a great windstorm arose and the waves beat against the boat, so it was already filling. Water was getting in their boat. Now, you may have never been out in a boat, but just as a fisherman, let me tell you, you know, it's not good when you get water in your boat. Because too much water in your boat makes your boat not float, but sink. And so they didn't have life jackets, they didn't have... Uh, throwable cushions. They didn't have any of those things. All they had was the ability to swim or not to swim. And so water was getting in their boat. It was already filling. But guess what Jesus was doing? He was sleeping. The Bible says he was in the stern asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? I mean, do you not see what's happening? There's a great storm. Water's getting in our boat. And you don't even seem to care. You're not, we're agitated, but you're not agitated. Why aren't you agitated? They didn't understand. So they woke him up, and the Bible says, Then he arose, he rebuked the wind and the sea, and he said, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. But then Jesus asked them a question. He says, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? He spoke to them his peace. He says, Peace I give you. He said, I give you a peace that you can't find anywhere else. Paul says it's peace that passes all human understanding. It makes no sense. But just like 1 Corinthians 1 says that the cross makes no sense to those who are perishing, it makes perfect sense to us who are being saved. It's the power of God and the salvation. The peace of God makes sense when you've understood it. Can you explain it? I can't. But His presence in my life and His Word that is trusted by faith brings a sense of peace over my life. And so there was the encouragement of His presence and there was the encouragement of His peace. And my friend, we have those same protections to guard against us. If you answered that question this morning with, with filling in the blank, I'm fearful of this when it comes to the work. And the work is living on mission. Being salt and light for Christ. Being, living as a missionary. Friend, it's, it, this is either the community you're supposed to live in or it's not. If this isn't the community that you're supposed to live in, you need to go live in the one God wants you to live in. But if this is the community that God's called you to live in, this is our mission field. And we're to live as missionaries every day. If you answered that question, well, I'm fearful of these things individually as a family or just a member of this church i'm fearful if we begin to have or we we have that total surrendered focus to the work that's outside jesus gives us this guard of his his presence and his peace to guard against any fear that satan might bring us to yield ourselves to what an encouragement the presence of his his peace and His presence in our life. A sure protection. Third this morning, notice this. Uh, a selfless precedent. What a selfless precedent that the Lord gives us. I've always loved these texts, and I've used them in um, funerals where 
the person had earned the right for the text to be used in their, their life. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he begins to say, but, but you must continue, Timothy, verse 14, in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. We begin in chapter 1 of 2 Timothy to say, you know, Timothy, I'm so encouraged when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded in you also. He's saying, Timothy, you had a precedent that was given to you by God. You had a godly grandmother and a godly mother. We don't know where Timothy's dad was, but he still had a godly grandmother and a godly mother that lived the holy life before him, and then he chose to follow that same precedent. Well, we've been given a precedent, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He has established a precedent in service. He's established a precedent for us in, in, in how we're to, to do the work that he has set before us, and it still stands today. There's the precedent of his, of his calling. Look what Jesus says again uh, in verse number 21 of our text this morning, John 20. Then Jesus turned to them and said to them. Now, they're glad that he's there. My question that I wonder is, after he said this, were they still glad that he was there? Now, I've discovered this in ministry, friend. People, and I've always seen it, you know, I've shared with you last week in discipleship, Galatians 4, Paul says, if I become your enemy because I tell you the truth, you know, they loved Paul when he came and preached the gospel, then when they began to have sin in their life, Paul shared what the Word had to say about that, and then Paul was the enemy. And, you know, that, it could be that way, Pastor. You know, people love when God starts plowing in somebody else's field, but when the Word of God starts plowing in their field, or the field of their family, or one of their kids or grandkids, then they don't like it anymore. So they were so encouraged with Jesus' presence, he's there, when he says, peace be to you. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? Well, listen to what he says now. So Jesus said to them, peace be, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Do what? And you, it's almost you could hear, the brakes lock up. You know, the old western, they pull the, the lever on the train. And everybody falls forward. Now what? As the Father has sent me, so send I you. But you just were crucified. As the Father has sent you, so send I you. It's, it's the example of his calling. Luke 19, verse 10. Jesus told them from the very beginning, friend, he didn't pull any punches, he didn't hide anything. There was no small writing like on the back of a contract in lawyer language. It says, Luke 19, 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He told them that. And then he prepared them to say, So send I you. God sent me to seek and to save that which is lost, and I'm sending you to do the same thing. He said, That was God's calling upon my life, and that's my calling upon your life as a disciple. And everybody look at me. If you've been saved, say amen. That's God's calling on your life. You can't escape it. So we have the example of his calling. But it's, it, that same calling is for us today. As the Father sent Jesus Christ to seek and to save, he sends us to do the same thing. We can't save anyone, but we point them to the one who can. It's a calling on all of our lives. 
It's all of our responsibility. Every born-again person has a mandate upon their life to follow Christ in his mission. So there's the precedent of his calling. But not only that, there's the precedent of his custom. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, I, I love this passage of Scripture. Paul says to the church at Philippi, let this mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you also. To, to think like Christ, to speak like Christ, to do like Christ. Let this mind that was in Christ Jesus be in you also. Listen, verse 6 says, Who being in the form of God, that's in heaven, in the spiritual body, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery, literally in the Greek, a treasure clutched. That is, all that he experienced, all that he was, all that he had in heaven, he didn't experience, he didn't treat it as a, a treasure clutched, to be equal with God, but he, he let go of it. Verse 7 says, but he made himself of no reputation. That is, he emptied himself of all of that. He made himself of no reputation, listen, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Jesus came and Jesus went to where the need was. It wasn't in heaven. There weren't any lost people in heaven. The lost people were here. They were on this earth. Jesus set aside all that he had in God, all that he had with the Father in heaven, and took upon himself the form of human flesh to come to where we were, where we had the need. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. He came to where we were. Jesus always goes to where the need is. Is. Now listen, there may be someone here this morning that's never been saved. Man, we're glad you're here. We're always going to give an invitation to you. We want you to turn from sin and to trust Christ to be Lord of your life. But my friend, the great need for evangelism and the focus for evangelism and the focus for living on mission, it's not inside the church. It's out there in the world. And Jesus came to where we were to meet our needs. And his example then in his custom is we're to go where the need is. We're to have that kind of focus. Jesus didn't sit in heaven and just pray and say, I pray something will happen. Somebody will die for him. They'll find a suitable sacrifice. He came to where the need was to meet it. And we're to have that same selfless surrender to go to where the need is. That was his custom, and that's to be ours. John 1, 14, and the Word God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we're to become salt and light, to be that salt and light, and we're to dwell among lost people. Listen, friend, we're not to be of the world that is like the world, but we have to live in the world. We can't isolate ourselves here within the church. You know, in a holy fort while the world dies and goes to hell. That, that wasn't Christ's custom. He came to where we were. And we're to go to where they are. We're to have that mindset. No fear. No excuses. We're to have that, that attitude. We're to go to where they are. The Bible says in Luke chapter 4 and verse number 43, passage that just means so much to me in these days, about Jesus said, after he had reached people, 
after Peter's mother-in-law had been healed, after he could set up a great following right there in that city and just never gone anywhere, Jesus said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. He said, there's people that haven't heard the gospel yet. My friend, there's people in your neighborhood, there's people where you work. I mean, this count. Listen, the other parts of Tennessee aren't exactly like this. Memphis, Nashville are. But there's little tiny places in Tennessee, they don't have anybody moving in. they got people moving out. We, we, we have the benefit, friend, of people moving to this county all the time. And many of them don't know Christ. The needle of nuns, and I don't mean ladies that wear little black dresses in the Catholic Church, N-O-N-E, every 10 years, Religious Institute of Studies does, does censuses. And they poll communities about what people believe about the Lord and believe about faith and believe about religion and what religion they're a part of. Well, there's a section called none, N-O-N-E, that people can check. And every year in Hamilton County, the needle continues to move more toward none. They're not Buddhist. They're not, they're not Wiccan. I don't mean they're just not Baptist. They're nothing. They're none. There are people that are moving into this area that are none. They need to hear the gospel. And so the need is there. And we have to go to where the need is. Out there is where the people are that need to hear the gospel and we're to share. That's where the work is. I want to tell you a little story. There was a pastor of yesteryear who, who told a story about he went to the, and he said, and it didn't mean a lot to him then, but as he got older, God used it to really challenge him concerning living on mission. His grandparents lived on an honest-to-goodness, old-fashioned farm. I mean, there were cows to milk, chickens to throw, feed at, get the eggs of a morning, hogs to slop, see what rats had been caught in the trap and give them to the hogs, all that stuff to take care of. So he went to his grandparents' farm, fields for, with corn that had to be, Hoed, cotton that had to be chopped. There was, there was work to do. So he went to stay at his grandparents' house. Granddaddy came in, got him up early. Got him up early. He could already smell the biscuits cooking. The sausage was frying. Gravy was popping. Grits were over there, boiling, getting just right. He could smell the coffee. His granddaddy says, come on. And so they went out to the barn. They milked the cow. They slopped the hogs. They got the eggs. They killed the rats and threw them and gave them to the uh, the ones out of the trap, reset the trap. They had all these things that they had to do. And so they came in, they ate breakfast. The sun was just beginning to rise. And the young boy, he was about 12, 13 years old, he says, well, I'm going back to bed. And his granddad says, what? He says, I'm tired from all this work. He said, son, them's not work, them's chores. He said, the work's out in the field. He said, what we've been doing is chores. Don't you listen to me, friend. Teaching Sunday school being a listener in Awana, leading Awana, singing in a choir, being part of the WMU, going on riding trips to, to be a ministry, going out to eat. All, all those things are chores in the life of the church. The work's out in the field. Work's out in the field. A lot of people come and think, you know, that we've, if I come here to church and do the chores then I've done my work. No, friend, these are just chores that keep ministry going within the life of the church. The purpose of the church is to help equip you for the work that's in the field. 
It's all about what your mindset is. That was Christ's custom. He went to where the need was. But not only that, but there's the encouragement of his conversation. You know, Jesus spoke to them about the kingdom of God. He spoke to them about how to have a right relationship with him. How do we do that? Listen to me. Very quickly, I'm moving. Let God's word speak. Just open the word of God and let it speak what it has to say about sin, sinners, salvation, surrender, separation in a place called hell. Let the word of God speak. You don't have to come up with anything. Just let God's word speak. That's what Jesus did. He spoke. The Word of God because He was God. And all we have to do is let God's Word speak. The Bible says, friend, one of the most freeing things in ministry I ever discovered when God first called me to preach is this. Just say these words. The Bible says. You may not like me. It may get on your nerves that I said it. It's not my fault. It's right here in God's Word. And you know, somebody may get mad at you because you tell them that lost people die and go to hell. That all are sinners. But it's not your fault. It's the Word of God. You just share what God's Word says. There's freedom in that. That was Jesus' conversation, letting the Word of God speak. And then not only that, there's the precedent of His calls. Why did He do? Why did Jesus do the things that He did? Well, because He loved us. But I want you to know something, friend. Jesus loved someone more than He loved you. And that's God the Father. The reason Jesus did the things that he did is because he loved the Father. Remember when Jesus talked to the woman at the well, John 4? And the disciples had gone for food. And he began to talk to her about living water. And she came with a bucket to get water from the well, but she left the bucket and took the well with her. You remember that? And she went and told all those in the town that she had met a man that told her all things that she had ever done. She had found the Savior. Well, the disciples came back, and they had the food. And they said to Jesus, hey, you know, we've got, we've got food for you to eat. And remember, Jesus spoke and said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, listen, and to finish his work. What was Jesus' motivation for living on mission? Because he loved the Father. His, his food was to do the will of him who sent me. Certainly it was because he had compassion. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. He looked upon those who, who had no shepherd. They were just wandering around in lostness. And he had compassion upon their hearts. And friend, if you've really been saved and you're in a right, grown relationship with Christ, the Bible teaches in the book of Galatians, one of the first fruits that's going to grow in your life as you're grafted into Christ, John 15, is that of love. You're going to love your neighbor. You're going to have a broken compassion for them. But sometimes people are going to get on your nerves and you're going to struggle with that love. But I'm going to tell you something, something that will always keep you driving and drive you back into that love begins first with the love that you have with God the Father and love for Jesus Christ. Why do I live on mission? I want people to be saved. But friend, above that is I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the work that he's called me to do. And he's called you to do as a disciple. He says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. When I was a boy, I'd go down to the post office with my mom. There'd always be a long line because my mother was a teacher. And there'd be a line, you know, around 3.30, 3.45. And so I'd kind of meander around outside and look. And I'd look through the FBI most wanted list, see if I knew any of the people. On there, I thought that was real interesting. 
But that was also where the recruiting station was in my town for all the armed forces. I remember there was a big old poster of Uncle Sam. Y'all remember Uncle Sam? Had the hat on, beard. You know, if it's today, it'd probably be Uncle Samantha, you know, just for equity. But back then, it was Uncle Sam. Big, long beard. You remember what he... He wanted, he was, he wanted to stand there in his outfit. What was he doing? He was pointing. And I always found the interest. I would, I would move around the post office. I'd move over to the left. I'd hunker down behind the little table where people would go through their mail. I'd move over to the right. And one thing I always noticed the way they did the... His finger was always pointing at you. You couldn't get away from it. You remember what was the message? I want you. I want you. Friend, I want you to see this this morning. There's a Savior in heaven. If you've been saved, say amen. There's a Savior in heaven that's pointing to you if you just said amen. And he's looking at you this morning. You can't escape his finger. I can only point straight down the aisle. But the Savior in heaven is looking at you this morning. He says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. You can't escape it. It's God's calling upon your life. And for fear of whatever, you can push away from it. Or my friend, you can experience the joy and the peace that comes by living in the presence and the peace of Christ and following His precedent in every way. Listen, there's chores to be done here within the life of the church. And thank God for everybody that's discovered their spiritual gift and does it. And to tell the truth, more people do chores than they need to because other people are so lazy they won't do the chores. And the chores have to be done. But these are chores. The work's out there in the field. That's where the lost people are. Jesus asked, Isaiah chapter 6, to Isaiah, who will go for us? Who will go? And Isaiah didn't say, well, send Ezekiel. Well, Jeremiah's going to come along in a couple hundred years. Call him. No, Isaiah said, hear him, I, Lord, send me. I'll go. I wonder whose heart cry that would be this morning, who for fear of whatever has not been doing the work in the field. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. If you've never been saved, precious friend, you, you cannot begin to serve the Lord because your sin separates you from Him. Christ loves you. He died for you. He wants to offer you not only eternal life, but a better life now on this earth. If you'll only turn from all your sin, forsake it, and trust Him to be Lord of your life. Would you not do it now? The quietness of your heart, tell Him so. What you've decided to do today, forsake sin and follow Him. Tell Him just like this, God, forgive me a sinner. Forgive me of all my sin, I turn from it. I believe Jesus died and He rose again. And I trust Jesus to be Lord of my life today. That's my decision. If you prayed that minute, I'm going to stand here at the front in just a moment. And I want you to step out into one of these aisles and make your way forward and say, I've trusted Christ this morning. Now I want to encourage you what God wants to do next in your life now. Be honest before God as you took that test this morning. Are you hiding behind locked doors? Or every day are you seeking to do work in a field that's wide under harvest? You know the truth. God knows the truth. And the Holy Spirit is convicting you of what that reality is. If you've been in the field... Pray God will continue to keep you in the field. Remember, the Bible says, let him that stand take heed lest he fall. You can slip and turn back at any moment. Pray God will continue to 
guard you and protect you and keep your heart tender toward his will and toward lostness. But if you've been hiding behind closed doors and really thinking that chores are the work in the field, pray God will break your heart fresh and new this morning. And you respond to his call as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Why don't you tell him from the quietness of your heart right now, me with all your heart, Father, here am I. Send me. I'll go. I'll go. I'll live on mission. This is where you've planted my family in this community. Everywhere I go, God, I'm going to live on mission, seeking someone to share the news that Jesus died, Jesus rose. He wants to save people if they'll only turn and trust him. That's my commitment today. Oh, God, I pray you'll revive our church, revive families, individuals. Father, there can be no right relationship with you when there's unconfessed sin and sin that takes place. God, if we're not living on mission, there's sins of omission in our life. Forgive us of that today if it's a reality. And God, I pray, bring us to a place that you can most fully use us in your plan and in your way and in your desire for the furtherance of the gospel and the improvement of discipleship of those that are one to you. It's our prayer this morning. Let's reverently stand to our feet.